Coupe de Thrill, shining headlights on the road less traveled. The podcast about thrilling careers and exotic lifestyles, how you might go about pursuing them, and inspiring stories from the driven individuals who have been there, done that. I'm your host, Chad Herman. Let's take a ride. Welcome to the show. I'm sitting down here with Matt Thomas, founder of Brawl for a Cause, a charity boxing organization, 2018 World Chess Boxing Champion, and founder of Fight and Flow. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing well, man. I thought when you said 2018, you're going to say that you competed in Brawl for a Cause in 2018 in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I did compete, yeah. <laughs> but uh, not at the world level no. like you did in chess boxing. So very impressive. I've never fought in a stadium before. Not a whole lot of people can say that. You were you were in Mercedes Benz, man. I was very thankful for that opportunity because my dad's always been a huge fan of boxing. Me as well, and the opportunity to fight in a stadium like that was just unreal. You rocked it. You had a great fight. Max Holloway had a UFC fight here a couple years ago, and he yeah. came through Porsche beforehand. Cool. And he was fighting in State Farm, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's cool. You're fighting in State Farm. I fought in Mercedes-Benz. You told him? <laughs> what did <laughs> he, he say? he was like, that is so cool, That man. is awesome. Yeah. Wow. That's cool you met him. He's a self-professed, the best boxer in UFC. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's, he's a good striker. He's fun to watch. He can tell you why he hit someone else in the face, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and sitting down with me. Matt is Honestly, one of the most impressive human beings that I know. Very thankful to have the opportunity to sit down with you. No, I don't know about that, but I, I am excited to catch up and, and to record it. And, and I'm proud of you for, for getting the podcast up and rolling. I'm excited to uh, to tune in. Sounds like you've had a lot of interesting people on and, and I'm honored to be among them. I appreciate it. So uh, let's start at the beginning. Where did your passion for boxing come from? Yeah, so I was I was born in a little like Philly suburb called Phoenixville, and uh, and both my parents are from Pennsylvania. My mom had a huge crush on Sylvester Stallone, and had like a Rocky poster in her dorm room, and met my dad in college, and they got married pretty young, had me, and that same Rocky poster was above my crib. So it was like from the beginning, I was brought up in that like Philly kind of culture, and you know watched Rocky from a young age, and always thought it was like fighting was cool and I had seven uncles and all of them were really rough with me like we, we would wrestle and and so like from a young age I really loved combat sports in general and specifically boxing my mom had me in taekwondo from a pretty young age too so I was learning martial arts I, I always wanted to compete in it my mom never really let me but I would still like fight with friends and that kind of thing, like like boys do. So I, I would say it was a childhood thing, and and my first real act of independence when I when I grew up and, and went to college and wasn't like following every rule from my parents anymore was I I started boxing in college at, at UGA. How did that go? Your boxing at UGA is just a club sport, right? But were you did you have any success? In the yeah. collegiate boxing scene? Yeah, so it started out as a hobby. They, they did $2 classes for 
students. So that like Ramsey Center is, is like our student workout center. And I saw people in this like side room that were just beating on each other. I was like, oh, like, oh like, yeah, let's do that. Check that out. Uh, UTA so, Fight Club. <laughs> yeah, basically. And there were two coaches, Ramon Hayes, who ended up being my first boxing coach, and Chris Jordan, who we used his ring every year for the first first couple of years of Bulldog Brawl, which turned into Brawl for Cause. So, yeah, I, I started taking those little like fitness classes. I started coming before and after and, and doing a little extra work with Ramon mm-hmm. um, and learning more about like technique and defense because the classes were really like most kind of cardio kickboxing or boxing classes where you're really just going for like uh, like a high amount of, of punches and calories burned in a, in a session and, and there's less one-on-one focus for developing like correct technique or any punches coming back at you you know it's usually like one directional at the at the heavy bag so that was kind of like the first level up of like oh my gosh like punches can come back and like technique really matters building good habits matter when he thought I was ready, he invited me on, on Friday nights. They had like a spar night. So not just UGA students, but some people from around Athens would come in and, and we would all, you know, sign waivers and, and beat each other up. And I would go straight from like Friday night spar nights to going out in Athens with, you know, black eye or whatever. And I, I felt cool. Um, but <laughs> especially the first like year or two, I, I wasn't winning a whole lot of the sparring. You know, I was just getting beat up and learning lessons the hard way. And, and after like the first year and a half, I think is when I actually joined the UGA club boxing team and we would travel around to other schools in the region. So Georgia Tech and Clemson and Florida, and we would have basically like burners, like, uh, like unsanctioned sparring nights. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't go on anyone's record, but they, they felt real, especially because you know, when, when you're fighting the same people every Friday night, they're kind of like your friends and you push each other, but you're not trying to kill each other. Those other ones, it, it was a little different. You're from a different school. There's like a team mentality. There's The competition is definitely leveled up when it's like someone you don't know that's like, you, you don't have that like gentleman's agreement. It's like, we aren't going to try to kill each other. It's like, yeah. no, we're, we're like testing each other and, and trying to win. So yeah. that's when it, it got more serious. It just like, Man, you know, people are knocking each other down. People are getting stoppages and that kind of thing. So that's when I got really into it. Because, like, in my mind, the ultimate form of competition, the ultimate sport, if, if sport is just meant to mimic war, the ultimate sport is combat sport, right? It it's, is. The, it's the closest thing to, like, just straight up trying to kill each other. So. We were watching the USC fight the other night, and that's what I was saying. It's amazing that 10,000 years later, the best sport that we've come up with is just to beat beat the crap out of each other, right? So <laughs> don't kill each other. Here are a few rules. <laughs> exactly. Not kill each other, but don't poke each other in the eyes and don't hit each other in the groin. Otherwise, yeah. like game on. Yeah, well, it's, it's capitalism infused with competition. It's like we we want you to be able to fight for us for you know years, not just tonight, like a gladiator, like. You know, you, you kill gladiator. Gladiator can't fight anymore. So exactly. I, I think we've evolved a little bit since Roman times. Just not, but not beating much. onto the lions anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, so that, that that's kind of started the amateur career, and I, I had a few amateur fights, and and then I got a, a bad shoulder injury that put me out for a few years because I, I tried to hold off on getting surgery and just rehab it and, and try to get it healthy that way. And it, it wasn't working. Uh, you know, my shoulder was coming out doing yoga and swimming and sleeping. Like it, it was coming out of socket all the time. So I finally had to get a surgery, which, you know, put me on another like six months, but 
it, it repaired it to the point where I could compete again. So when I came back, I, I haven't had any just boxing fights, uh, I guess until last month, but I, I transitioned into a sport called chess boxing. And that, that really took over as my like passion and competitive expression because I grew up playing competitive chess. I was doing martial arts growing up and then I started boxing in college and it was just this big combination of two of my favorite things that uh, is really awesome. Really three of my favorite things because we were talking about yoga uh, just before this started, but yoga for, for state change, like when you're switching between two different activities and, and doing the kind of breath work and, and, and focus that you have in yoga, it, it's so a part of chess boxing that it isn't just chess and boxing. I think, I think yoga kind of flows through everything, but, but definitely not sport too. Have you always been into mindfulness and yoga, that kind of thing? Where, where did that come from? Um, no, no. I, I don't think it was even on my radar until probably around college. I dated a yogi. Uh, mm-hmm. I met maybe most most guys, I don't want to overgeneralize. That's how I got into here, yoga. But yeah, <laughs> most guys kind of get introduced through, through a girl. Thank you, ladies. So yeah, so I, I dated a yogi. She gave me my first yoga mat and dragged me to some yoga classes and and at first, you know, I felt like a fish out of water. I felt weird trying to, like, get my body into those positions. I wasn't super flexible. That was something I really had to work at for for yoga. But once I got into a groove of it and uh, and realized its, its benefits, then I started getting much more motivated to go deeper into it. And after being introduced to it, like, maybe a year or two later, I, I was in kind of like a like a valley, like a, like a mm-hmm. dark place in my life. And yoga was what helped bring me out of that. So I, I had dropped out of law school. Uh, I'd started a business that failed. My mom was sick. There's just like a lot happening all at once. And, uh, and I felt like really out of control in my life. And something that a lot of yoga teachers say is like, you know, leave everything that's you know, in your life, in your past, in your future off the mat. When you're on the mat, like that's your whole world. Um, and you can be completely present. And I really felt that in that, that time where, I, I didn't want to think about anything else besides just like whatever pose I was in and how I was breathing and coordinating breath with movement. And that really helps. And, and yoga asana, like the physical practice of yoga, is such a good entryway into what yoga really is, which is, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's more of a way of life. It's a belief system. The physical practice is just the first part, but there's breath work, there's meditation, there, there's even like the Ten Commandments of yoga, the, the yamas and niyamas. So it's like ways to, to actually like live life and treat others and treat yourself. And, you know, w- without the bait of that physical practice, I don't think I would have leaned all the way into going to yoga teacher training and reading the Bhagavad Gita and, and reading a lot on, on Buddhism and, and associated kind of yogic write, writings. But it's, it's really changed my life and changed the way that I interact with myself and others and and it's definitely like a way of life that I want to live for the rest of my life I couldn't agree more I was telling you I had a similar experience had just gone through a breakup you know no job you know no opportunities was moving back just in a bad place in life and it totally within a month you know changed took me back to to normal yeah and better you know so it was it's real important and I I am the biggest advocate of getting people into yoga, people who have never tried it because it, it made a huge difference in my life. Especially dudes, you know? I, I guess I totally judged it before I got into it. I was like, girls do that. 
You know, like yeah, like that's that's not like a masculine like men fight like let girls you know stretch on a mat, and that could not be more wrong. It's for everyone, and uh, and it can help everyone, and it and it's something that you can do until you die. I mean, mm-hmm. it, the, you, you know, they're they're definitely like athletic yogis or gymnastic yogis that are doing the headstands and the you know the really tough poses, but you can do really simple things that will they'll provide a huge benefit for the rest of your life. A lot of my clients are older men that wish they got into it in their 20s and 30s and, and built a habit or, or, or trained their body to, to be able to do those things because when you get old, it's harder to, to pick up those, those new skills. So no matter how young you are, no matter how good you think you feel right now, yoga can make you feel better and lean in as early as you can because you'll be doing it for the rest of your life so that leads us to fight and flow Mm -hmm. so fight and flow is an initiative you've had to combine boxing and yoga together for just an overall way of life and and way to you know get people in better shape provide mindfulness training all that kind of stuff can you just tell me how that all started i know you were leading broga sessions in piedmont park I don't know if that's kind of where it started or if it, it had roots before that. Yeah, that was a step on the journey for sure. Yeah, so so fight flow is to to what we're to the point of what we were just talking about. Like it's kind of it's kind of designed to trick guys into doing yoga and then and then get girls punching, kicking, learning some like basic martial art kind of stuff, but also just be be able to get like a good cardio kind of workout. You aren't striking anything. There's no contact, so. You're doing shadow boxing. You're doing bodyweight calisthenics like squats and lunges, and and so the in in my mind, it's it's the perfect combination of like yin and yang. It's this like fight, high heart rate, high activity, warm up the body a lot to start out the the workout for fight and flow, and then it's this yin of of once the body's warm and open, you can take advantage of that that openness and expand muscles and. And help them restore and recharge and say you have to be able to do it again for the next day. So it's it's not something that completely exerts you and leaves you exhausted and sore for three days and that kind of thing. It's little iterative improvements that you can do every single day and that gets your heart rate to where it needs to be, expands the, the body, gets you feeling like blood's flowing and energy's flowing and, and it can energize you for the day. It can also challenge you. But I, I love it because it like chest boxing, it combines Two of my favorite things, martial arts and, and yoga. But it really started around the same time that I was kind of down in the dumps and yoga helped. You know, I had been fighting for a while and I was taking a little fight uh, break from fighting to let my shoulder heal. And I was doing a lot of yoga and my girlfriend at the time wasn't the yogi. She was kind of joking with me when I was doing yoga in the driveway. Just like, I thought I was dating a fighter. Like, where, where's the badass? I thought I was in a relationship with who's this like sissy yogi boy mm-hmm. and she was joking but like I was like wait a minute like you can be both like you can you can have both, both of that at the same time like why why can't those be combined and I kind of doubled down on, on doing both boxing and competing in boxing and yoga to balance that out and recover and and make sure I stay you know injury prevention kind of stuff make sure I stay healthy and and that was about eight years ago so yoga practice continued progressing. I lived in Costa Rica for a year right underneath a yoga studio. So I was practicing multiple times a day. And then three years ago, I did a yoga teacher training through Lululemon. 
and actually got my 200 hour certification and, and learned how to not just have a personal practice, but to, to teach others how to do it and learned a lot more about that, the ethos behind yoga. You know, I really thought it was just a physical practice up to that point. I didn't really understand the, the philosophical side of it. And after that yoga teacher training is when I started actually combining the two into one workout. Instead of doing them separately and using them to balance each other out async, then, you know, synchronizing them and, and weaving them together into Broga was, uh, was kind of the first iteration of fight and flow. So Broga was, we would do mitt work and shadow boxing, get super sweaty out in the park, Piedmont Park, and then we would, we would do yoga after. And everyone would just be like, you know, they, they felt exerted and they broke a sweat and they felt great. And then they got to like stretch and, and a, a bunch of the guys that came out, I think he came out. So it wasn't your first time doing yoga, but a bunch of the guys that came out was their first time doing yoga. You look at someone like uh, uh, like Tyler Eastridge, who's who's built like a an beast. Uh, yeah, <laughs> built like Olympic weightlifter, like bodybuilder type, and he's doing yoga for the first time and like seeing the benefits and the muscles are getting stretched out and he's feeling better and and that's what made me want to like keep going is, is people like him that were just like man I, I didn't know how much I needed this. Well, it also makes you stronger without necessarily getting bigger. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it gives you that, you, you, you hear about like farm boy strength, mm-hmm. you know, just from like moving barrels of hay and, you, can, you know, it's not going to get you like the aesthetic, you know, mirror muscles, but it's yogis, especially when it comes to core strength, I've found, like abs and low back and balance, it's a game changer. And, and that's another reason why it, it balances combat sports so well is you get so much more in tune with your body and able to to sense like where pressure on your feet is and, and and how to keep yourself stable in difficult positions and breathe through them, not hold your breath. There's there's so many intangibles that you don't think of when you start yoga that end up becoming game changers and really whatever you're doing. I mean, I, I'd be curious to hear like, have you seen yoga affect any of the kind of like driving or you've had other like extreme athletes on on the podcast like do any of them do yoga or are there benefits into those worlds because my hypothesis is like probably it's huge for rock climbers especially so i have some friends who are big time rock climbers and just the ability to deal with stress Mm -hmm. and those situations and i mean i think it helps with everything you know Mm -hmm. driving riding motorcycles that was the number one thing I raced motorcycles professionally for a brief period when I was a teenager, and I wish I had been doing yoga then. That was the one thing that I wish I had done, because during Brawl for a Cause, I, I didn't train for, for too long, and then made a mistake of sparring with Matt one night, and that pretty much put me out for the 10 days before the fight. So yoga was the best thing I could have done, because if nothing else, at least I could breathe in the ring. and. And if I found myself, you know, not being able to breathe, know how to deal with it and get my breath back. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like a Swiss Army knife. It, it is. is. You, you, can, you can use it so many different ways. So if you take nothing else away from, from this conversation, go sign up for a yoga class. Support your local yoga studio. We'll get back to Bra for a Cause. Matt and I went to UGA together at the same time. And I actually met Matt. I was a videographer for the student newspaper, The Red and Black. I got called out to film this thing called Bulldog Brawl. So I was there filming and found out that Matt was the one putting this whole event on. And it was an amazing event. It was at the Georgia Theater. He had the coolest host ever. He had Rance, who is a little person. 
for lack of a better term. Yeah, no, that's yeah, I think that's the correct term. And, and Rance, little person, huge personality. Oh yeah, um, and and to this day, one of my favorite people that has ever hosted Raw for a Cause. So he, he's a he's a rock star. But the funny part was the co-host was like seven foot tall. So you've literally got like a four foot height difference between the two hosts, which was really cool. And, they and they're play, both in tuxedos. Yep, They play so well off each other. So Aaron White, he was a tight end for Georgia on the football team and so charismatic, so funny. And, you know, they, they would like act like they were fighting in between rounds and they would each pick like red corner or blue corner between before each fight and like be the hype man for whatever brawler was going in and in those days it was it was definitely a different vibe but bulldog brawls than how it is now with brawl for a cause like this is a little bit more of like a like a frat you know beat each other oh, up yeah. shit show <laughs> yeah, like but i i didn't always i wasn't always aware of this but it's like you know people would be taking shots before they went in the ring and you know jordan theater would always have a huge day at the bar whenever we had those events and Man, those were a blast. I miss those days. It was a lot of fun. I'll never forget. I was off to the side of the stage talking to a friend in between rounds. And Rance just catches me off guard, you know, from down below. He's like, everybody, Sean White. Because I had the long, flowing, (laughs) curly hair at the time. So I did. I was like a deer in headlights. I didn't know what to do. Yeah, man. Yeah, he's he's hilarious. And, and those were, I mean, those were the seeds of what grew into something that, that is really a big part of my, my identity and vocation and something I'll be doing for the rest of my life. And, and if I had known that at that time, like how big of an impact it would have, I, I don't know. I wish I could like go back and whisper in my own ear and be like, soak this up. Like you don't get these early days back and, and this is going to be a big part of your life. Cause I'll, at that point I was just doing it as a hobby. I just did it cause I, I love boxing and there weren't many events that people could compete in in Georgia, especially people that wanted to do it kind of as a hobby or for fun. And so, yeah, I, it, it, uh, it really took on a life, life of its own. And you were able to spread it from UGA kind of throughout Southern college towns, right? You kind of did a little bit of a tour of a few different college towns. That was the original model. So yeah, we, we had a, we had an event going at Clemson and, and I really stopped all that because I, I decided to go to law school. So mm-hmm. that's kind of like the first big crossroads in my life. It's like, I was always planning on going to law school and just as uh, kind of like through inertia or, or momentum, I, I still decided to go, even though I felt it wasn't right. Like graduating, I, I, you know, I just, when I graduated, I was, I was the youngest person to sell at the Georgia Theater. The owner of the theater was my mentor, Wilmot Green. And he was like, we're going to open up another venue. Like you should just promote, like keep doing your fight thing, but learn how to promote concerts. And I, I often wonder what my life would be like if I decided to, to do that with him. Because going to law school, I loved law school. I met a lot of cool people. I love the Socratic method, like how they, they like teach. And it definitely shaped the way that I think. And it's been useful in business. A lot of good things came out of it. But it ultimately isn't in line with like where my career has gone and what I love to do. So, yeah, I, I often think about what if I had taken it to you know 10 other colleges and, and grown into like a national kind of like tour kind of thing instead of what it is, which is a, a big annual event in Atlanta. People, especially now, are, are are competing from other cities but flying in for it. So we have fighters from L.A., New York, Miami. Yeah, my guy was from Dallas, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 
yeah, it's it's definitely based in Atlanta, and this is where our our network is, our sponsors are, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I often think about like, what if what if it just became like a touring kind of event series? What would life look like if it was if it was that? And and now there's other businesses and and other focuses, and this this is really turned into my philanthropic kind of expression and, and project with with some close friends. But if it was just like the all encompassing career. I'd be curious to see what that would look like and be like. You've raised over a million dollars already with Brawl for a Cause, but you have a goal to raise a billion dollars in your lifetime through this organization. That's that's a hell of a goal. Yeah, I need to live like a thousand years, probably. Uh, <laughs> a, a billion, a billion dollars is a lot of money, but it's it's one of those things where it's you know first to have a billion dollars of philanthropic impact, like it's. It's a goal that I can die pursuing. Yeah. And if and if I do hit it, awesome. Like we'll pick another number or we'll just keep doing it for the sake of doing it. But it's, it's And your organization goal. can live on and reach exactly. that goal. Exactly. Which is the ultimate yeah, the the ultimate vision is that it, it survives me. Um, mm-hmm. so it, it keeps happening after I die. And you know, it's also like a, a good rallying cry. Like it's yeah. uh, it's something that gets people excited and that you know usually comes up in a, in press or an interview or whatever. Yeah, brawl to a billion is a is a fun fun little hashtag, and, and it'll be a good journey. Well, you've impressed me so far. I'll never forget going to that event in college and being like, "Wow!" Like one of my peers is the one who put this on. Like this is this is crazy. And then when years later I heard that you were having brawl at the bins, that just again blew me away. Like, how did you secure? the newest, most expensive stadium, or maybe not in the world, but at least in the United States, for a charity boxing event. They had never done a fighting event there. Yeah. How how did you go about that? Yeah, so, so in both cases, both the, the college days and at Brawl the Benz, I mean, two things. One, I always had a lot of help. You know, whether it was like vendors or volunteers or whatever, a lot of a lot of people that either believed in it or believed in me or had like set skill sets that were masters at what they did, like took a chunk of it. And it, it's always a village. Like it's always a team that makes those kind of th- kinds of things work. And two, I never felt like I was I was actually like in control. Like it was it was a constant sense of like everything's about to fall apart. This is chaos. Like the event's going to get canceled. You know, multiple times, like, we had doctors not show up or paramedics not show up. And, like, you don't have those people there. You can't have fights. So it was, like, they're just, you know, coming and, and experiencing the event and, and seeing it as something that was, like, going well is awesome that you had that experience. But it never felt that way from my my side of things. I can't imagine. And and, um, and the, the Benz event was the biggest expression of that, like... Three weeks out from that event, the, the Benz canceled it. Like, told us that, you know, we had to refund tickets and, and, and they were going to do something else with the date. And I just remember thinking, what? like, we'd already raised over $100,000. And, like, most of the money is usually raised, like, the week before the event. Yeah. So, like, to already be at 100000 before we even go into the final push, it was huge. And just, like, thinking through, like, everyone like you that was training for the event, all the causes that had like blasted it out on their listservs and talked about it in their like chapter meetings and whatever else. Just having to go to all those people that were involved with that event and be like, sorry guys, like it's canceled. Would have would have just completely chat like I it's almost like life flashed before my eyes of like it's all over. <laughs> like we're you know, we're we're gonna give this money back. We can't afford to give this money back. Like we're bankrupt, we're dead. 
but no, the, the, both the way we got into the bend and the, the way that that event was saved is primarily due to one guy who's, who's my partner in Brawl for a Cause, Sam Konigsberg. He was an investor in a, in a group that was involved with the stadium. Mm-hmm. They had a field level suite, which gave us like direct line of communication with the event staff at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And we got a pretty favorable deal through him with the stadium to be the first combat sport event uh, on the field. For a couple of reasons. One, we did it as a private event. So it wasn't a public event that anyone could buy tickets to. Technically, we were selling tickets through closed channels. So you mm-hmm. either like knew a brawler, you were involved with one of the causes, or you'd come to a past event. And so like we had our email list, we had new brawlers, we had the causes, and that's a pretty big net. Mm-hmm. It, was almost, it almost functions like a public event, but we were only marketing through those channels. So that let us play by the rules of like, a company Christmas party instead of playing by the rules of like a Taylor Swift concert. Interesting. So if we had to do like Taylor Swift concert kind of rules, now we're getting like, we're insuring the entire stadium. We're insuring Arthur Blank, a billionaire. We're, you know, we're, we're having to go through Ticketmaster instead of a private ticket or like there, there's all these things that would have made it completely untenable for us to be able to actually do that event. Um, so that was the first first big win, and, and almost the reason why we got canceled is they were like, "Hey, we're hearing this on the radio. We're hearing this. You know, you're you're doing this publicly. Like, we're going to cancel the event." You're like, we're, "No, no, no." We're like, "No, our <laughs> co-main event is a radio show host. He's just yeah. talking to his community. You know, That's, like we had to get like kind of technical <laughs> things and like right, go bad for Brian Moot. Yeah, he fought Marshall, right?" No, so Brian Brian fought Dusty Rutherford, the preacher. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the preacher man. Yeah, so we, we had a brawling preacher, and he brought out, like, his whole congregation. Like, his whole church came out to watch their preacher fight, which is so funny, man. And, and Brian ended up winning that fight. Dusty fought again in 2019, and he ended up winning winning his fight. That dude's a badass. But yeah, Sam got us in, and then and then Sam was, you know, we we went over to this room in here with the whiteboard, and, and when they canceled the event, we we just we went through every single email correspondence that we had with the the Benz team of them condoning certain marketing messages and mm-hmm. um, knowing that you know we were we were marketing the event how we were and that they were complicit in us planning the event the way that we were planning it, and basically setting up this this like court case before it was a court case of just like here's all the evidence of why we, we should still be able to have this event. And, and it took about a week of back and forth. but and, and we had to do this completely behind the scenes. You know, we couldn't let any brawlers know or even any volunteers know. So it was really just Sam and I trying to, like, we were fighting to save the fight. Like, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was really intense. But a, a great bonding experience is what really, like, brought us together as, as partners. And ultimately, that, that, that event was our inflection point. So we, we raised over a quarter million dollars for that event. And we were able to, you know, fund, like, that was the first time I ever take, took a paycheck from Brawl for a Cause was after that event. Um, yeah, so, well-deserved. So, for seven years, like, Brawl for a Cause was a labor of love. You know, never, never paid myself. And then that that eighth year, Brawl at the Bends, Sam helped me set up a board of directors. And they ended up setting up a salary. I was like, hey, you can focus on this, like, you know, more full-time. You don't have to do other, like, odd jobs or whatever to, to help you know, to pay rent and like basic bills. And so that was another game changer. I was like this, you know, this thing that you experienced well, in college. <laughs> yeah. But, but that, that was just like a hobby and a fun thing. And, you know, now, now it was becoming like a, a vocation, like something that I could actually 
support me and and uh, and that I could count on. And that's existed almost until today. You know, COVID kind of changed that. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have a 2020 event, so I stopped paying myself. But yeah, I mean, we're now we're starting to plan a 2021 event. So hopefully we'll be we'll be back in action here soon. Awesome. I'm looking forward to fighting. Yeah. <laughs> I was very thankful. I'm sure it's just how it worked out. But I was actually the first fight that night. Yeah. So I get to lay claim to the first punch thrown. First TKO in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, you which do. I'm and, very thankful for. And, you know, typically, you know, how like traditional fights are structured is like the main event goes last or whatever. Maybe maybe you can attest to this, but I think the best fight slot of the night is the first fight. Because after you're done, now you get to enjoy the rest of the event. You get to go enjoy the open bar. You get to watch all the other fights, not worrying about your fight. You don't have to sit backstage and, and have that anxiety and, and stress of like the fight's coming up, the fight's coming up, the fight's coming up. So I think that's the way to way to go is, is Definitely. get in there, fight, fight for charity, do your thing, and then enjoy the rest of the night. Definitely best case scenario. Yeah. yeah, I threw on my suit. I had a great night that night. That's awesome. I, I don't know if my opponent had such a great night. I heard he went straight to the airport. Yeah, <laughs> he, got a, he got his bell rung. Yeah, yeah, he did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking forward to hanging out with him afterwards. I he was nowhere to be found. So. Yeah, sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. I, I think one of the things that I love to see, like as a the promoter or organizer, is when brawlers become friends after. Yeah. They're, they're sharing shots at the bar. They they end up like like training together after, like making boxing a hobby. Like I, I really love seeing what kind of connections come out of a brawl, especially when you fought. And and there's nothing that bonds you to someone like a, like a fight. It, especially when you train with your friend or something and you're pushing each other, you're helping each other get better. It, 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 that's like another level of friendship in my mind is, is when you can beat each other up and share a beer after. It is. I became real good friends with Tyler during the whole process nice, and yeah. never would have stepped in the ring with him to spar with him. He is a definitely a different weight class, but yeah, he's a mountain. He's he's a, he's a beast. And yeah. he's in Miami. He's still boxing a lot yeah. too. Looks like that became a lifelong hobby or at least, you know, what it's been 3 years. Tommy is a police officer too. Became real good friends with him, and he is a very impressive boxer, in my opinion. He's a beast, man. Yeah, he's one of my favorite people. Yeah, he's he's as good as it gets when it comes to like just a good old boy from Jersey. And like you said, police officer fighting for a police related cause, youth programming called Pals. But yeah, he still helps train brawler brawler classes. So he's one of our top mentors. So yeah, the way the way the program is set up. It's intended to be your first fight, so you're, you're almost guaranteed to be matched up against another first-timer. You train for about three months, and we pair you with a mentor, so someone that has already gone through the program that can speak from experience and help you train. And then we, we provide free group training and then discounted one-on-one training. So oh, we have partners like X3 Sports and Cater Boxing and Steel Boxing that open up their doors for, for the months leading up to the event, and then have a lot of great coaches that you know, depending on your style and, and what you're looking for, they can they can help you get ready and be in your corner for, for the actual fight. Yeah, and some excellent so, coaches, excellent resources you have there. I think the guy that I was taking classes from was like the Cuban Olympic coach for a little while or something like that. He didn't speak much English. I never got much out of him as far as uh, other than uh, <laughs> just the basic, you know, training. But 
I could tell he knew what he was doing. Absolutely, yeah. He's the head of the, the X3 boxing program, and he was a, a, a coach for the Cuban Olympic team. And Cuba, amazing place for boxing. They have won more Olympic medals and more gold medals than any other country in the world in boxing. So for this little island, you know, the size of Florida, to, to have more medals than the United States, more medals than Russia, more, you know, than these like massive countries. It's, it's mindless. So he must be doing something right. And, no uh, doubt. and to have access to that kind of coach in Atlanta is, is, is unheard of and really special. So I, I've trained with him a lot too. He, he helped me a lot. The, the awesome thing about Cuban boxing is it's, it's nothing fancy at all. It, yeah. it is just the, the simplest fundamentals done right over and over again. I think that there's a big life lesson in that. You don't have to, you know, peacock or overperform or, or try to do fancy things. You, you just do the little things right. You build you build good habits and, and good things will happen. I found the most important thing when we were sparring. I very rarely found anyone in my weight class, mm. you know, there at the gym to spar with. So I was sparring with a lot of bigger guys and it is real important to not get hit. Yep. So I found out that lesson, and it definitely paid off in my fight. I I, I don't think I ever got hit, so <laughs> so uh, nice. definitely helped find the big guys and yeah. thinking I really don't want to get hit by this guy. That's the name of the game, man. Hit, don't get hit. Practicing defense first, doing that Mayweather style of like I'm gonna bait you to try to hit me, and I'm gonna counter you. That's that's how I like to fight too, and that sets you up for a long career instead of being that like brawler style where you know there's a lot of damage both ways that's more exciting to watch for sure like people you know people that come to fights like to see that kind of like both people getting beat up and that kind of thing but the definitely the sweet science like the artful side of combat is that evasion that picking your shots and, and i like watching that style too yeah Unfortunately, Mayweather-Pacquiao, for most people, was the most boring fight of all time. But mm-hmm. it's because both of them kind of have that fighting style. They're not trying to take a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah. And, and Mayweather especially. Yeah, best defensive fighter of all time. Like Pacquiao is a little bit more like come forward, you know, unorthodox southpaw. You know, exciting to watch. But Mayweather made that boring. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why he's so performative outside the ring, leading up to it and after and flung his money and all that kind of stuff is because he's, he's a boring fighter inside the ring, especially when you don't know what you're looking at. <laughs> In all reality, it's actually very impressive the way he fights, but mm-hmm. from the outside looking in, not not so much. Yeah, and he's still fighting. He just fought Logan Paul in Florida, which is crazy. Which I he's, couldn't believe he took you know, that. In but... the 40s. Oh, man. Money Mayweather. That's yeah. a big money fight. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he made a pile of money off of that for... You know what, eight rounds. And how easy was that on his part? Yeah, I mean, well, I think I think Logan surprised him a little bit. You know, much much bigger guy, and he was a collegiate wrestler, so he he knew how to have stamina and and tie him up, so he wasn't taking a ton of damage. You know, he, he'd throw a big shot and then tie him up, throw a big shot and tie him up, and a few of those big shots landed. So I think he gave Mayweather a much tougher time than than Mayweather thought, but. But yeah, it was funny seeing them even just stand next to each other. Logan's like 6'3 or whatever. And you can see how small <laughs> Mayweather is oh, when he gets so that dude. big. But that, that's fun. I, I really love what's happening in that, that influencer boxing kind of world. A lot of people hate on it, but I, I think I think it's good for everyone. Yeah. I think it's I think it's good for boxers. I think it's good for influencers. It's definitely good for Brawl for a cause. 
recently made an opportunity for you, right? So Matt recently had a big knockout in a fight before the celebrity boxing matchup between Lamar Odom and Aaron Carter. Yeah. Let's yeah. uh let's talk about that fight. Yeah, it was it was fun. So it was the week before Mayweather Paul and it was in Atlantic City. Never thought I'd fight in Atlantic City. I, I never intended to you know to take a fight career to any kind of like pro or, or international kind of level. But Atlantic City's a big destination for fighters and that's where the fight was. And Lamar Odom walked into our gym, the Cater Boxing Gym, to, to train for it. And, and the way that this all started is I just started as a sparring partner for Lamar. I was never actually going to fight in it. And yeah, we, I mean, we, we became friends through training. He introduced me to the head promoter for celebrity boxing. And, and I got talking to him and, and he learned that I was on Love is Blind and, and had this chess boxing belt. And was just like, listen, if, if you want to spot on the undercard, like, we'd love to have you. And I was like, why not? Like, fun life experience and influencer boxing is becoming a thing. And this will be fun. Train with Lamar and we'll be a team. And and both of us ended up winning our fights. I had Xavier Biggs in my corner, who's been my coach for a long time, but hadn't ever cornered me. Because the last fights that I've had have all been chess boxing and either been in Turkey or India. And so that even just that, uh, it was worth doing it for, being able to... To have Biggs in my corner and, and, and then, you know, you, you said what the outcome was, but first round knockout. I've never had a knockout like that. Uh, so that was, that was a lot of fun. A hook, a hook to the liver did him in and couldn't have been a more beautiful combination. <laughs> Thanks. All, all praise to Biggs. Biggs works at very, very similar to the, the Cuban coach that you brought up before. He works fundamentals, but he really works like flow and evasion better than any other coach I've, I've ever worked with. So. You walk into Decatur Boxing Gym, there, there's like a 99% chance that Jazz is playing. And his coaching style is is move like Jazz. Be spontaneous and unpredictable and, and smooth. And so all that shadow boxing to Jazz, you know, my, my opponent threw a big overhand right. That was easy to see coming and got right out of its way. He opened himself up with that overhand right, right underneath the right rib. So I, I gave him a left hook there and that's what like stunned him and, and kind of made him freeze up. If you haven't felt a, a real body shot before, especially on a sternum or, or, or a liver or kidney, those those paralyze you. And then, For more than one day. Yeah. Well, especially that sternum shot. <laughs> so the, the, the sternum, you can't you can't build muscle over it. No. So you have, you have pecs, you have abs, and then kind of right in the middle, you're, it's the only spot where your ribs are really exposed, and it's right over your lungs. So it's like this bullseye right in the center of the chest. So... Yeah, if you haven't been hit there before, the first time you get hit there is, is eye-opening because you almost certainly lose your breath. Everyone after is ten times worse. Once once you bruise the sternum, you're yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not fun. Um, so really, the, the only way to get used to it is, is to spar and take those hits. Or, you know, when you do ab work, like having like a medicine ball and just pounding yourself there. So you build up some, some sort of like numbness or, or resistance to it. But that's that's one money shot for body, and then liver shot. You, you hear about a lot just in pop culture. But I mean, that one actually just shuts your body down. Like yeah. you, 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 you can't continue. Yeah, and it doesn't matter how tough you are. Doesn't matter how many times you've been hit there. Like you find a good liver shot and sting them there. The best fighters in the world get upset by getting caught in the liver and stuff. So that's that's a good one to practice. That left hook to the body. Uh, that that can take you a long way. <laughs> Coming back to chess boxing, you said you yeah. played competitive chess when you were younger. Mm-hmm. So up to about what age? Up to high school or middle school? 
Yeah, like middle school. So last tournaments that I played in were when I was 11. And then I still, I was still like at the school chess club and still playing, you know, playing good people. Just I had to choose between travel soccer and chess. And I had a ton of energy as a kid. Yeah, so you need and, to run. <laughs> yeah, and so being outside with friends, you know, running around, kicking a ball was was a lot more appealing than sitting in a cold, dark room and, and just studying chess openings and responses. And I really love both. Like, I, I love competition. And chess is, is another ultimate form of competition. You know, it's truly pure expression of, of mental warfare. And so I, I loved it. But I wasn't excelling in either soccer or chess because I was trying to do both. And so I chose soccer and chess was still a hobby through, through most of my life. Like I, I would play like when in, in college, when you could have laptops to take notes on, like I was playing chess in every single class and I always have a chess set. There's one on the table right behind me, but I always had a chess set. So anyone that would come over and want to play, I love playing. So I was president of the high school chess club. I just loved the game. And, and then, you know, when I found out that it was combined with my other favorite thing, <laughs> fighting people, I was like, oh my God, this sport was made for me. Like, I can't wait to see what this is all about. And what an honor to be able to represent America in front of the world stage <laughs> in something that you're so passionate about on both sides. Yeah, not, not something I ever thought would be a part of my, my life. You know, it, it kind of getting out of, out of high school, and, and, you know, recruit for soccer and that kind of thing, but not like a top-tier soccer player. I was like, I'm probably not going to compete for my country in any capacity. But like mid-20s to find this sport and then to be able to compete for America was mind-blowing. And, and truth be told, anyone could have done that. Like all it took was willingness to do it <laughs> because no American had ever competed in the World Championship for chess boxing. So they, they just wanted participation at that point there wasn't like a tryout to make the team all i had to tell the founder of chess box was like yeah i'll fly to calcutta india and you know get beat up by people to (laughs) to be the first american to do chess boxing like cool the real surprise was the actual outcome in that in that world championship can't be being the champion of the world yeah that that was not expected i actually i didn't book a flight back after the tournament because i didn't know if i was gonna like be in the hospital or like, like if I could travel right after, like I, I did not think I was going to do well. (laughs) I was, I was signing up to like probably get my butt kicked, but, but, but to do it for my country and and, in the sport that I wanted to get, you know, to, to compete in. So, um, but yeah, it went, it it ended up going well. I competed against a Korean guy in in the finals and, and won and came out pretty unscathed from a, from a boxing standpoint. I mean, like, you know, Black eye, bloody nose, uh, some bruises, but nothing, nothing major. So the next day, booked a flight to Thailand with with my corner man and and one of my best friends, Rob French, and ended up spending spending some time in Thailand celebrating, <laughs> which was one of the best times of my life. Yeah, Thailand is at the top of my list. I've been to Vietnam, but never been to Thailand, and they also have a uh, huge combat sports history, right? So yeah. that's got to be a neat place for you to go as well. That that was a humbling experience too, and and, and part of what contributed to fighting flow was was I ended up training for two weeks in Phuket at Tiger Muay Thai, and uh, and just getting my ass handed to me by like teenagers. Like, I can imagine so. Like like literally like not landing any shots. And, and just having like little shin bones tear into my quads and my calves and just not being able to walk 
you know, like it, it was, uh, it was so eye opening. I thought being from boxing, uh, having just won the chess boxing world championship, like, you know, my ego's up here after something like that, my confidence up here. And then, you know, having like a 13 year old kid just make me look silly. It's like, oh yeah. <laughs> like those kinds of experiences, those humbling experiences are the best because they take you right back down to where you need to be, which is seat of a learner and. Just when you think you're tough, you'll find someone yeah, tougher, right? Yeah, for sure, man. For sure. That's that's one of the best things about life. So for people who don't know, chess boxing, you do... Do you start out with the boxing first or the chess first? Yeah, yeah. So it's the board game chess combined with the combat sport boxing. So you start out with chess. So you get warmed up, you get wrapped up, you get ready to fight. But the first three-minute round is chess. You and I play chess for three minutes. Uh, there's a timer. So after I make a move, I hit a timer. And then your timer starts counting down. You make a move. You hit a timer. Now my timer's counting down. So there's actually three battlefields in chess boxing. The first is is the chessboard. The second is the the boxing ring. The third is the timer. Yeah. Um, so if you exactly. run out of time, you you end up losing. So okay. you got to move fast. And putting your opponent in time pressure is similar to like going up in points against your opponent in boxing. So, like, you know, you, you get close to the end of the fight. You know you're behind in points. you got to knock the guy out. Yeah, Otherwise, you lose exactly. by decision. It's kind of the same way in chess. You could be winning on the, on the board but losing on the timer, and the timer matters more. So, like, moving quickly, moving accurately, moving safely are all really important things to train for chess boxing specifically because of the nature of it. And, and especially when you add in the layer of boxing. So, like... After that first chess round, you have a minute to put on gloves and get in the ring. It, there's no way to box without your heart rate spiking, without adrenaline being released, and you're probably going to get hit. So what do you do with that that high heart rate, high adrenaline state where you might be feeling a little dizzy or you might be like hurting and not want to box that guy again? You know, what, what do you do on the board? Um, exactly. You know, are, are you still thinking about what happened the, the last boxing round? Are you worried about the next boxing round? Is your pattern re- pattern recognition the same, or, or has it suffered? Did, did you train uh, chess in a high heart rate state, or, or is this the first time that your body and mind are having to to go through this? Like all these things all rolling into one one round. It's easy to make mistakes. It's easy to to not be present and to be thinking about the past round or the future round or whatever. And, and all those things are, are part of the competition of chess boxing, which is why I love it. Got to be present. Got to have really good state change management, which breath work helps a lot with. And, and, and you have to be dynamic to figure out what your strengths are, what your opponent's strengths are, and how to maximize yours while finding the, the weaknesses in your opponents. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful sport. And, it, and it's one I intend on on being involved with for the rest of my life. Even if I'm not competing, I, I, I want to see it continue to grow, especially in, in the United States. And you can win by either checkmate or knockout, right? So how did most of your victories during that tournament come by? Yeah, all of them were checkmate. All um, checkmates. Yeah, all checkmate. And about 80% of all chess boxing matches are won by checkmate, which doesn't mean that the better chess player always wins. But it does mean that the expression was either time or checkmate. So, like, let's say you're a much better chess player than I am. Mm-hmm. But I, I like, almost knock you out in the, in the boxing round. And we come back to the board. 
you're okay. dizzy, you make a mistake. Even if I'm the worst chess player, I can recognize that mistake, capitalize on it, and get you in a bad position. Yeah. So that's why chess is usually where 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 that comes out. But the other component is if time runs out, because it's a chess timer, that also counts as checkmate. And time runs out in a lot of games because you can find yourself in a bad position. You can try to stall on the board to get more rounds in the ring to try to knock your opponent out. So, you know, time becomes a huge component too. I'd imagine so. Yeah. And it was probably pretty cool to compete in India, right? Because if I understand right, India is where chess came from. Is that correct? Yeah. So India is the birthplace of chess. And India is like, I think it's the closest you can get to being on another planet. I uh, would agree. When it, when it comes to like places you When you, you step can off travel. the airplane, you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> place is nuts. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, first off, there's a billion people there. So about, you know, one seventh, one eighth of all people on the planet are in India. So it's just crowded, like a crazy amount of people. And there's like no rules. Yeah. Like driving, like there really aren't traffic lights or, or signs or anything. People just kind of get in a car and go somewhere. And you have to drive looking straight forward. Otherwise, you're going to hit something. So people drive with sonar. Like yeah. they're, they're, they're just constantly beeping. So as soon as the sun rises to you know well after sunset, they're beeping constantly throughout the day. And you kind of like just figure out where people are based off of beeps. And then, you know, there's like cows in the road and yeah. and, uh, and animals freaking everywhere. I would say and it's it's not for everyone. You're either going to absolutely love India, I did, or there's a lot of people, especially if you're coming from the States and aren't used to that, you might just be out of your element. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> I think regardless, you're going to be out of your element. Like yeah. It's, it's going to be an adventure. It is not a relaxing vacation destination. No. Like, you can't even find that there. Like, even to get to a place like that there, like, if you're going to a retreat center or a monastery or, like, a, you know, a romantic hotel by the Taj Mahal, you have to go through all that insanity in order to get there, which is going to put you in, like, a fight-or-flight state. It's a crazy place. But it was a, it was a great place for chess boxing because, you know, the Indian people are, are some of the most, like, passionate, supportive people I've ever interacted with. So oh, like, yeah. if if you are competing in something, they're like all in and excited about it and chanting things and wanting to get pictures and, and interview you after and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, they're, they're also all about celebrations and accolades. So, yeah. so to have the, the chess boxing world championship there and then to win it, you know, I'm getting like flower wreaths and crowns and robes and trophies and all kinds of stuff that it was just it was such a crazy experience man you just got elevated um, to the next cast yeah okay, there we go <laughs> exactly yeah that's the other thing is there's they're still so entrenched in their system they still you know make romantic matches based off of astrological mm-hmm. charts so there's like a arran- essentially arranged mar- marriages there's still a caste system so you really can't be arranged with anyone outside of your caste. Like I said, I think it's the closest you can get to being on on another planet. It's like it's like you're interacting with a bunch of aliens in I, this foreign foreign world. It's so cool. I totally agree. Yeah. I loved it. It was just yeah, mind blowing. When did you go? I was there in 2010. Wow. Okay. So it was quite a while ago. I'm sure it's changed massively sure. since I've been. I'm sure it was a totally different experience for you. Yeah. But then again, at the same time, you know. 
India, in some ways, is many years behind. Development, for sure. It's just a wild place to go to. It is. What brought you there? I was there on a program called Semester at Sea during college. Oh, sweet. And got to go for about a week as as a part of that. So I, you know, got around as much as I could. So many parts of the country in just just a week or so. so What a cool program. Shout out to UGA for stuff like that. Like that. They did really well with international study abroad kind of offerings. But Semester at Sea always looked looked awesome. I'm I'm jealous you got to do that. Yeah, it was the most amazing experience I've ever had. So... Definitely blessed to be able to be a part of that. So, yeah. Well, any any opportunity to get out in the world, yeah, shake up your belief systems and and get outside your comfort zone, I think is a is a good move, especially when you're young. Cause Definitely, that, that kind of stuff pays dividends the rest of your life. It's like compounding interest. The the more experiences you get at a young age, the more you realize what's possible, and then you can design your life around. You know, hey, I think. You know, this, this Indian belief system or, or yoga or whatever is, is a good way to live. And, and it can completely alter your life path just by, you know, one experience like that. I couldn't agree more. A lot of people, you know, save up money their whole lives so they can retire and then go travel. But what, what good are those travel experiences going to do you when you only have 10 years left to apply them, right? That, yeah, that ends, you know, the benefit of youth is, is resiliency. So you, you have a body that can... You know, you can you can go hike some mountains, or you can get into a Thai boxing ring and take on a teenager, and and you know, be okay. You can't do that when you're retirement age. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, while you have youth, and and honestly, like the other nice thing about youth is you don't need a whole lot of nice things. You know, you can be crashing on couches or hostels or whatever. So you can you can make it work even when you don't have money. Like That's... my my twenties, I didn't have any money. I was running a oh. nonprofit. I wasn't even paying myself from. Like it was. I was I was traveling, uh, you know, rice and bean style, and and that was, I mean, it's probably going to stay like the favorite chapter of my life <laughs> because that's, that's the way I love to travel. Yeah, for I sure. was in Honduras at the beginning of the year, and you know, staying at a place for six bucks a night couldn't have been happier. That's but, awesome. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. If you're staying in a nice place, that means you're paying for a reason to like be in the room to stay there. Yeah. It's wrong for so many reasons. Stay in a, sh- a shitty place or you're actually out experiencing the place where you are, not just a, a fancy room. Like, I'd, I'd, I'd rather have a bunk bed and a, a place to lock up my bag so I can actually, like, be out and, and you know, Kosan Road in, in Thailand or be, you know, out with the, the sonar drivers in India. You know, just experiencing all that. That's it. You, you got to actually experience a place. I hate that about traveling that it's so many especially americans you know mm-hmm. they'll just go and book the nicest resort wherever they're at and then they never leave the resort it's like did you did you ever see the place you, you just saw the beach and to each their own you know yeah. if, if that's what makes you happy go go for it I, it's just the way i'm wired that's the opposite of what i would want to do especially like that all-inclusive kind of model where you're like living in a little snow globe and like you really can't leave even for a day because you're paying a ton of money to be there and have unlimited food and alcohol and whatever else. It's like that is the opposite of how I I like to travel. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I was just in Cancun. My parents have had a timeshare down there for a long time, and every time I go, I'm just I'm almost miserable being in a place like that because 
there's just too many people. Mm-hmm. Everybody's just doing the same thing, sitting on the beach, drinking, drinking their days away. Mm-hmm. It's just not how I like to travel. So I find myself more miserable sitting in a place like that than, you know, being in bad situations. Like I had an allergic reaction when I was in Honduras and like, to you what? know, ironically, I think laundry. So. Oh. I'm sure my body was on edge. I had gotten destroyed by bugs for about a week beforehand. And I think my body was just on edge. And I think there was lye in the detergent. Mm. I didn't know I was allergic to lye. But if you've ever seen the movie Hitch, my face was worse. (laughs) So (laughs) Just blew up like a balloon? Yeah. Yeah. And when I got, finally went to the medical center, you know, they were like, Oh God, like, it's your heart okay? Like, can you breathe? Like, you, this is like the worst we've ever seen. Like, no someone way. had an allergic reaction. Oh my God. So, but despite that, I would rather have been there lying in a hospital bed in Honduras than I would sitting on the beach, you know, with a bunch of all inclusive people. Yeah, those, those are character building experiences. And those are, those are like the stories that stay with you for the rest of your life. It's like, how did I get here? <laughs> like, I get to a hospital bed in Honduras and, you know, I survived it, and it, you know, it proves things to yourself where that, that character building kind of sentiment, like, you, you can do hard things and be okay. Yeah, I think, I think, like, you think about parents, I know it comes from a good place of wanting their kids to be, like, safe and healthy and, and successful and that kind of thing, but my mom's always terrified when I go anywhere internationally. It's like, well, you know, what if you get hurt? It's like, People get hurt there. Yeah. You know, they, they have doctors. They have to like, yeah. figure it out, you know? Like, I can get hurt here, too. Like, yeah. walk across the street, get hit by a car. Like, it's, it's not like a... The, the world does not have to be this scary place that, that bad things happen when you aren't just safely in your, in your comfort zone. Kind of the opposite. You get out and you realize, like, wow. One, everyone's pretty much the same. You know, might speak a different language or enjoy a different kind of food, but... We're all made of the same stuff uh, and act in very similar ways. Yeah, we um, all want the same things ultimately. Yeah, and then the, the differences are actually the, the most exciting part of life and of travel. Like, then you get to see how other people live and and, and what they do and how they do it and, and see if it works for you. And that's, that's awesome. That's an opportunity, not a threat. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, my parents also just the super safe route, you know, we're, we're not, you know, I didn't get my sense of adventure from them by any means. But yeah, I think that's, you know, conquering some kind of adversity while you're traveling is, is, is a part of it that you look back and that's the most exciting part. It's like, hey, we, you know, at the time, it might have been the most miserable time of your life. But those are the stories that you remember. Thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, being stuck inside for a year and a half, it's exciting that the world's opening back up and, and, and that kind of travel and adventure is possible again. And it sounds like you've already leaned into that being in Honduras and Mexico earlier this year already. But, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get back out there, too. I, I, I've really missed it. I've been stuck in this apartment for <laughs> a little too long. Yeah, because you've traveled pretty thoroughly, right? Uh, you've been to quite a few countries. Yeah, so most of my travel was in the last, like, five to six years mm-hmm. um, and, and 34 countries in, in that time and, and lived abroad. I mean, lived in Costa Rica for a year and, and was nomadic for about a year after that. And, and both of those experiences, both living abroad and like actually having to work 
in another language and, and really solidifying like a second language that way. And then also like not having a home, just kind of like traveling with two backpacks and, and being out in the world and, and making a home like myself were, were both like really identity forming important experiences for me. Yeah, working remotely has to be amazing. I have a friend, he just completed a five-year-long journey down the Pan American Highway. Sweet. So he's a professional photographer and videographer. Okay. So he'd take, you know, if he had big videography jobs, he'd fly back or whatever and mm-hmm. do them for the brands he was working with and get right back to the van. And I'm sure the content, he's one of the most amazing photographers I've ever met. I can't imagine five years of him traveling you know the length of the americas yeah the pictures he'll have are gonna be mind-blowing good for him man i'm sure you'll see him in uh you know he'll be like peter lit he'll have one of those galleries in in las vegas or something like that selling hundred thousand dollar photos yeah good for him get him on the podcast too i bet he has some stories oh yeah jeff stockhausen i'm coming for you (laughs) i'll be in oregon soon enough so (laughs) there we go yeah one, one of my good friends I did a stretch of the digital nomadship with his name's Shane Milam, and he was nomadic for three years before the pandemic. Wow. And he has aspirations of competing for the United States in distance running. He's a, he's a really avid runner and ran in college at, at USC and stuff. And so when he heard about COVID and how it can affect lungs, he, he went from being nomadic for three years straight. So living out of two suitcases and going to every continent and, and doing the whole thing to living with his parents for eight uh, up until this week. So this week is the first week where he's going back out into the world. I'm sure he's amped. So the only people that he's interacted with for the last like 17 months or so has been his parents. <laughs> from people, from someone that's been to like way more countries than me and, and like was completely nomadic. Absolutely insane. But I'm excited for him. Yeah, I'm excited for him too. I'm sure he's ready to go. (laughs) For sure. There's so much to talk about with you, Matt. So uh, you recently kind of forayed into the TV world. So you were part of the cast of a show called Love is Blind on Netflix. It was a dating show where you couldn't see the other person. You're basically having dates without being face-to-face, right? And then you had to choose someone without ever seeing their face. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Did you make any lasting connections from that or, or was it just not the way to go about dating? Yeah. So, so the whole thing is a social experiment that really resonated with me. So I'm not a big reality TV guy. I don't watch any, any reality TV. And my mom had nominated me, it like applied me for The Bachelor multiple times and, and I'd gotten callbacks and casting and stuff for that and never went through with it. But this one stuck out to me because... Because of the social experiment component, like can human connection occur, especially romantically, without seeing the other person? So, so take out the typical distractor of like, oh my God, that girl at the bar is so hot. Yeah. Take that out of the equation. It's just like, do your belief systems line up? Do the way you, you think about money line up? Does, do you want to have kids? Do you want, like all the important conversations that tend to happen after that honeymoon phase of any relationship where you start getting into real stuff it happens up front so you know off the bat before you start a physical relationship before you 
you know, build a lot of attachment to someone without really knowing them, you, you kind of know who they are at their core. It was a beautiful experience. I did end up connecting with someone and ended up dating her after the show for a few months. And, uh, and that was a positive experience. I'm still friends with her, even though it wasn't like a long-term thing. Uh-huh. And um, and then I made a ton of friends from it just because, one, it's a crazy experience. Kind of like if you're in a fraternity, it's kind of like pledge ship. You know, it's yeah. something just like really intense. You all went through it together and can only re- really understand it together. You know, like you, there, there are other people I can talk about Love is Blind experience with. It's really just the cast. So I still have some like really close friends from that. A couple of them have, have brought for a cause, which is awesome. Because the show ended up airing right before COVID, which means everyone was stuck inside looking for stuff to watch on Netflix. And so it was super popular. <laughs> it was it was number one in the U.S. for five weeks and nominated for two Emmys. And um, that's another experience I never thought I would have in my life, is being a part of something like that. I'll be a small part. So I, I guess overall, like, super positive experience. To break it down, like, they only really followed the people that went to the altar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... You know, I, I'm the I'm the first face that pops up when you watch the show, and tells you what the premise is. I ask a few questions and like are in a few scenes in the first two episodes, but then the next eight episodes, it's all focused on the couples that like got engaged through a wall, went to the altar, and what happened. You know, with with the aftermath. Um, so that's kind of the other somewhat positive part is is I didn't get the like crazy raving reality tv fans just like yeah like all up in my life and my grill which I, like it really kind of worked out perfectly <laughs> yeah i i think your route is the way to go yeah. like make a connection with someone you date afterwards like it because it's still the social experiment part like it worked right kind of yeah for sure and and like you know, had, had this cool life experience, made a lot of friends, understood how that world works and, and don't have the, the intrusive component yes. of, of reality TV celebrity in, in my life because I, I don't feel that way at all. I mean, I, I'm not getting like if I if I walk around with Damian Powers or, or Giannina or, or Barnett or, or any of those other people, they're getting recognized constantly. They're, they're oh, getting yeah. pictures. Of, you know, it's just like that would be a lot. <laughs> like That yeah. would fa- fame is. Fame's an interesting thing. Uh, yeah. Just to observe, not not even being famous. But Something yeah. I've never really desired. Yeah. Yeah, especially seeing it up close. I I think there's probably a time where it's like, that'd be cool, like, experiencing that. Uh, but you can't, like, undo that, you know? Exactly. So it's, it's yeah. like, can't hit the reset button on right. that. Yeah, exactly. So, But, yeah, but we, we actually have more episodes coming out July 28th. So it's, it's called After the Altar. It's, it's what has happened since the show. So we all come back together for, like, a... Like a celebration of the the couples that got married as kind of like their anniversary party, and then also just like check in with what everyone was up to, and and we filmed it during COVID, so it was like in November. So that was honestly like like one of the first times I kind of like came back out into the world was seeing all those people again and not having to like cool. wear a mask. We were all tested and stuff, so it was really fun. And and I think that you know there'll be good drama for the people that love the reality TV drama and. And yeah, I'm just glad it's still a thing. You know, it, it'll be a nice, nice to see it come out and see how they edit it and stuff. I, I, I really love being a part of that and, and being on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, and for it, like you said, for it to come out during COVID when everybody was glued to Netflix. Yep. I mean, it couldn't have been more prime timing for for it going big time. <laughs> and and people ask sometimes like, would I do it again, or or would I do other like reality TV? 
And for anyone thinking about applying for Love is Blind, if, if you've had like, you know, bad experiences in relationships or, or you're, you're actually looking for someone to partner up with, not mm-hmm. just like date, it's a really good option. And, you know, there's, there's, of course, like reality TV production that goes into it where you know, some drama is instigated and that kind of stuff. But it's it's a really cool experiment and it can work. You know, you can look at Lauren and Cameron, you can look at Barnett and Amber and like they, they are legitimately married and building a life together and like it worked for them. So I, I would definitely recommend it. And then uh, I, I probably want, I mean, I'm in a very like happy, healthy yeah. relationship. So I wouldn't do another dating show, but... I do want to do something like like an Amazing Race or a Survivor or something like that. So I might I might be getting back into that world a little bit here soon. We'll see. Before COVID kind of derailed things, you were considering making Brawl for a Cause a TV series. Is that correct? Yeah. So part of the reason why I wanted to do the the show was was to see how Netflix produces a reality show. Mm-hmm. And, and learn as much as I could from a participant standpoint of like how I would do a Brawl for a Cause reality TV show. So kind of like UFC has the contender. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were thinking about following people from signing up to Brawl, what they're fighting for, learning how to fight, and then actually fighting. So each person would kind of have their own episode of, you know, who they are, what their cause is, and, and then their journey. I think it'd be a great series. Because yeah. people come from all different backgrounds. They're fighting for all different reasons. I think it'd be great. Totally. I think we're going to start it through like a web series and, and social media kind of thing. So let, let people kind of self-film, self-tell their story. Mm-hmm. And some people have already done a really good job with that through Brawl for a Cause. We had Erica, a single mom, fight for her daughter's leg surgery. Uh, one, one of the most powerful stories we've ever had in, in Brawl. And and that, that caught on. Like people way outside of her immediate network or even the Brawl for a Cause community saw her content, saw her campaign she was able to fund two leg surgeries over $50,000 and all the rehab through her fighting and the content associated with it. So there's real power in, in that kind of storytelling. And I think if we lean into that a little bit more, Brawl for Calls will grow. We'll be able to do a lot more good. Yeah, that's amazing to hear to hear the stories these people are actually getting in the ring for. And you had a podcast where people can listen to some of these stories, right? Where can people find that? Yeah, it's called Stories Worth Fighting For. Um, And we're about to ramp it back up when we announce our next event. So right now you can just find it like on our YouTube. Search Brawl for Calls on anything and and there'll be a pathway to it. So if you find us on Instagram, we have a link tree for it. If you know YouTube, just search Brawl for Calls. And you'll see a lot of the, the videoed podcasts. Like, yeah, that's really fun because not only do we interview brawlers and, and kind of catch capture their story going to the ring, but also people who maybe are never going to, like, fight in Brawl for a Cause, but are figuratively fighting for something they believe in. Mm-hmm. It's, like, really passionate people talking about, you know, what they care about, which is inspiring. Speaking of inspiring, the way I always like to round out the show is just giving advice to anyone who's looking to pursue their dream, whether they're a boxer, you've done so much. There's so much advice that you could give to young people. So what advice would you give a young Matt or anyone who's trying to pursue their own personal dreams? Yeah, if you're, if you're young, time is your most valuable currency. Any stage of life it is, but, but especially when you're young, spend time on yourself. You might not have a lot of money, you might not have a lot of connections, but if, if you spend time getting to know yourself, putting yourself in 
uncomfortable situations, understanding how you work, what you're naturally drawn to, and, and tracking that somehow. Like I, I journal, but there are other ways to do it. You can vlog, you can share that kind of stuff with a partner or a family member. But getting to know yourself and tracking that is, is I think, the most important thing you can do as a, as a human being. I, I, this might be a little spiritual, but I think our only job in this life is, get, is to get to know this, this ego, this vehicle that we've been given and to experience that fully. So once you understand what makes you tick, where your natural passions lie, you, you can lean into that. And, uh, and that's what's going to give you the most exciting, valuable, successful, impactful kind of life is, uh, is being the most yourself and, and just figuring out what that means and then uh, making decisions to, to, to do that, whatever it is, is the most important thing you can do. There's not one recipe that works for everyone. There's, there's not one path. And that's the beautiful part is we're all so different. Like figure out what, what makes you different and, and do that. I couldn't agree more. Coming from someone who's done so much, I mean, like I said before, you're one of the most inspiring guys that I know, and I, I can't appreciate enough you sitting down with me and, and sharing your story. That's a tough one, man. And it's crazy that we've been connected since the early days of all this and, and been in each other's lives. I, I, I appreciate you for covering it in college and fighting in it in you know 2018 and, and sitting down here with me today. It's, it's a lot of fun, and I, I hope we say in touch and, and friends for a long time. I absolutely will. I've always enjoyed following your adventures. And if you guys want to follow Matt's adventures, follow him on Instagram. It's at moving with Matt. Really fun guy to follow. He's always got something going on as, as you've seen throughout this podcast. So thank you again. And looking forward to doing some broga with you in the park. Definitely, man. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it rolling. And yeah, best of luck with, with podcasts and all of your, all your adventures. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to Matt Thomas on Coop to Thrill. For more information on Matt's multitude of initiatives, please visit brawlforacause.com, fightandflow.co, or wellfests.com.